0: Good afternoon and welcome to Town Square. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. As we tell you every week, this conversation can include you. If you'd like to join us, the phone lines are open at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you're on the neighbor islands or if you're listening to the live stream, use that number. Now, this past summer, Hawaii became the last state to ban sex trafficking. Last week, prosecutors from around the world met in Honolulu to explore how to better network global trafficking cases and increase the chances of ending trafficking in their jurisdictions. That's all good news for the future, but advocates for kids who have already experienced trafficking say that these kids, many of whom are middle school age, need more attention to make their young lives whole. Tonight on Town Square, we'll consider society's responsibility to trafficked minors and what type of rehabilitation efforts are needed in our state to heal kids often considered throwaways. With us tonight, Jessica Munoz, the founder and president of Ho'ola Napoa, a Hawaii-based nonprofit whose mission is the renewal of trafficked girls. She practices emergency medicine full time at a local hospital as a nurse practitioner. During the past six years, she's provided training to hundreds of healthcare professionals and social services providers. She joins us by phone. In our studio, Tammy Batanga is a survivor of sexual abuse and trafficking. By the time she was 18, she had been in eight placements. She's now an advocate for trafficked kids and last year assisted with response and awareness training of agency and law enforcement first responders. We'll hear more of her story during the program. And Leela Goldstein joins us. She is the executive director of Women's Fund of Hawaii, a grant making foundation dedicated to exclusively supporting women and girls statewide. Women's Fund has twice granted funds to Ho'ola Napua. And of course, you're here too. And you're welcome to join the conversation, 941-3689 from Oahu or 877-941-3689. And welcome to all of you. Thank you for making time this evening. Thank you, Bethann. Tammy, I want to start talking with you a little bit because your story is both horrifying and amazing considering where you were as a child and what happened to you and where you are now. Take us back to the time when you were a little girl and your father who was abusing you, and what happened from, from that point when you were small?
1: So I was um hanaid into a family which is uh, just adopted, but not legally. And so all the way till I was 12 years old, I didn't even know that he was my Hanai dad. I thought he was my biological dad. But um, as far back as I can remember, uh, four years old is the farthest back I can remember. And I remember specific incidents um, during that time. That's how I know I was four, um, that there was some sexual abuse going on. And um, I didn't really know that it was wrong or that I should be even fearful or anything until I was about 10 or 11. And then I realized, okay, this is not right. People Dads don't do this. My friends' dads don't do this. So I started to resist a little bit. Um, and, ha- and how
0: did you find out that your friends' dads dads didn't do this? Did you actually do any sort of temperature checks with them or intimate what was going on in your household?
1: No, I, I don't really know how I figured it out, like, specifically, but I just kind of realized, like, my life was different. And my dad would always say, don't, you know, don't talk about it. Other people don't know. In some cultures, this is okay Um, Just in America, it's not. And, you know, so people won't understand. I mean, I don't remember specifically exactly the kind of words that he used, but the gist of it was that. And so um, I think during the time that I started to like a boy is when I was about 12. And then it was like I wasn't really allowed to like a boy. And so then I was like rebellious against that. Like, why can't I like a boy? You know, and then I stopped like wanting to even... Um, share things with my dad about like my life, sort of. But it was there was a lot of abuse. Was he still pressuring you
0: for sexual favors at that point?
1: Um, so I don't really consider it as sexual favors because it was my dad. It was more of like, um, just like our private time together and spending time with him. Um, and I, I'm not going to go graphic. Um, and so the you know there were just certain things that fathers should not be doing with their daughter. And so... um,
0: So how did you get out of that situation?
1: So when I was uh, 13, I finally told my sister. um, And there was just a situation where my biological mom had come to get me, and they asked me, do you want to meet her or do you want to go to Oregon and live with your sister who is my older sister who had raised me a little bit as a child. So I missed their family and I wanted to go. So I decided that I was going to go to Oregon. So at 12, I left and I went to Oregon. And then um, when I, I think I was still 12, it wasn't quite a year yet. My dad wanted me to come back to Hawaii and my sister, I had gotten into tr- trouble over there because if you're... Um, if you're sexually abused, I'm not sure if everybody knows this, but you're kind of promiscuous. And so it's kind of just a trait because you're just looking for that attention and that's the attention that you receive and that's the kind of attention you look for. And so I had become kind of um, active in pursuing boys in seventh grade in Oregon. And so I um, I was asked to come back to Hawaii and then I kind of threw a fit and I said, you don't understand, you don't know what dad's doing to me. And then I proceeded to tell her what he was doing. And at that point, she was just like, you know, you're just saying that because you don't want to go back to Hawaii. So she didn't believe you? So I know she believes me because it happened to her. Later on, we found out that it happened to her, too. So I think she just really couldn't deal with me at the moment. And so she sent me back to Hawaii, and then it continued. Um, And then when I, you know, in Hawaii, when I came back, I wrote her a letter, and I said, you don't understand He did this to me. And it was very severe what he did to me. And so I think at that point, she realized that it was beyond fondling and that she needed to help me. And so she did. She called CPS. CPS came to my school. They put me in a police car. They took me to an emergency shelter home, like foster care. Um, I had to do a victim impact statement, like tell my story over and over to police then I had to go to Kapilani and do like a whole examination and tell my story again then I had to tell it to a social worker I mean it was just like how many times did I have to tell my story and I so I told it and then I was placed in foster care and back then it was in I want to say like um I don't know probably 76 maybe um I'm not sure actually how, what year it was, maybe 77, 78. but anyway, back then they just would um, take the kid out of the house. They wouldn't the, the like my dad he just he just gave me up as a ward to the state because by then we realized that he wasn't my dad and I threw it in his face and I was like, you're not even my real dad because during that time, my sister had finally told me that he's not even your biological dad. So I just threw that up and said, you're not even my biological dad. You, you know, you lied to me all these years. I hate you. I hate my life. I hate this. And then he had actually gone on a trip when CPS finally came to get me. So he wasn't even around. So he didn't get arrested, nothing. They just removed me from school and put me into foster care. And so that's how that ended. And then I was in a foster home. Um, then I got placed into a permanent foster home, um, yeah, and that's that's how it ended with the sex abuse with my dad.
0: And how did the trafficking start?
1: So, while I was in the foster home, I had met um I had met another girl that had been trafficked. And so when she talked about it, it was pretty glamorous seeming, and um I wasn't I wasn't really um shocked by it at all, you know, cuz in the I guess in the 70s, there was a culture of, you know, there's just that type of music and whatever. And so I have an older sister who was a stripper and who was always out there kind of running away and stuff. And so we always kind of thought she was bad. And then my my biological mom, they told me a lot of bar stories about her and that she was just... So in my mind at that time, when I think back on it, I think, well, maybe that's just what I'm made to do because of the abuse with my dad Maybe this is just how I'm going to get along in life. And so then when we went to Waikiki one day and we were cruising with some friends and then these guys came up and I I knew what they were about. It wasn't like I didn't know. And how old were you at this time? I was 15 at that time. I had just uh, finished my freshman year of high school. And so when these guys came up and we were partying and by, by that time I had already done cocaine. I had already done um, a lot of alcohol and a lot of pot. And so these guys were just came up and, you know, they had weed and we were partying with them. And then one thing led to another and I didn't go back to my foster home that night. I went home with one of them. And um, so after that, it was um, very quickly revealed to me that I was in a situation. And so, um, yeah, I just say you
0: were in a situation that you were with someone who was then going to be. So on the street,
1: yeah, you so made that, that connection. Yeah, I already knew like the next morning what I was in. And I had a choice at that time, I suppose. That's what I thought when I was 15. Because I didn't decide to leave that I just stayed. And so I don't know what would happen to me if I said, you know what, I don't want to be here. And I don't want to do this. I don't know what would happen to me because I was very willing to do it. You know, and so it was okay, a couple nights in Waikiki. And then he just happened to have. Oh, he just happened to have um, a cousin that had a massage parlor in um, Alaska, and so he was like, "Okay, well, do you want to go to Alaska?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I want to go to Alaska. Cause I'm out of here."
0: Let me interrupt you for just a second. If you're just joining us tonight on Town Square, we're talking about whether society has a responsibility to kids who have been sexually trafficked. We're talking with Tammy Batanga. She's a survivor of both sexual abuse and trafficking, and we're listening to some of her story, which uh, some would say is pretty indicative of of stories of many kids who she now mentors.
1: Tammy, continue. So um, so I ended up going to Alaska and then um, working inside of a massage parlor for about um, five months and just – There was a lot going on over there. There was a lot of um, just stuff that I did. And so eventually, though, I decided that I didn't want to be there and I I wanted to come back to Hawaii. So I um, I contacted my dad, (laughs) which seems kind of weird. Yeah. Like but then at the same time, you think about like domestic violence, like how many times do they go back to their abuser and so for me, it was like I knew that I could get a plane ticket out of my dad. So I just asked him, "Can you just send me a plane ticket?" And back then, you just had a—I had a fake ID. I told him what my name was, and I just did it. And I got back to Hawaii, and um, it was just kind of go back into, get back into the system, get back into foster care. But nobody really addressed like that I had trauma or that I had something going on.
0: So let's fast forward just a little bit to now when you are mentoring a lot of kids who have come through some of that. Mm-hmm. Someone say well there's still not a lot of help for them either. That's at least what we hear as a, as a top line story. Is that true?
1: Correct. So we are, we are just now discovering like well I would say the studies have been going on for quite a while now but it's the, the kind of complex trauma that they suffer. The kind of trauma that they suffer is what makes their behavior.
0: So how did you get yourself into what other people would consider more of a, of a normal existence?
1: I don't think I really got normal until about 16 years ago. So I've been out for 16 years. But um, from the time I was 18, so I came, I came out. So I, I, le- I left the pimp when I was 15. Um, but I continued down that path and in that lifestyle and numerous times in my life back and forth case so I was like in the life, not in life, in the life, not in life, in the game, not in the game. But I didn't really feel normal until about sixteen years ago. I want to bring Jessica
0: Munoz into the conversation and, and thank you Tammy for being so open about your story. Jessica, how how truly representative is Tammy's story?
2: I I believe and have heard and have seen a very similar thread through so many of the stories that we have worked with, with girls who've been trafficked. And um, even nationally, as you hear the stories, there's this similar thread of prior abuse, of prior exploitation, oftentimes starting in the home, Um, and then this progression to ending up on the streets, ending up in the hands of our perpetrator, and then a very difficult time with getting out of what we call the game or the life Um, and it's very difficult especially for children to get out without someone helping them and recognizing what they've been through recognizing the fact that they've been exploited and without that help you know it's as Tammy said you know she might not have been in the control of a pimp after the age of 15 16 years old but she had suffered so much damage and so much traumatization that even, you know, her current social worker at that time didn't know what to do. Looking at the
0: time period that she's talking about, you know, roughly, what, 20, 25 years ago, at least, there are some who say, well, there is so much that we really didn't understand about that then. Mm -hmm. But there seems to be so much more that we understand about it now, and it at least appears from what you have said when we talked on the conversation earlier this week And what we heard from Tammy That the the real sticking point is the willingness To do something about
2: it Is that true? The can you rephrase the question again? The willingness to do something. That we understand about it so we understand we understand community? so much
0: right. That we understand so much more about what this means in the life of a child. We're told so much about the way a brain develops mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a very young child and the way children begin to see the world from a very early age as they're shaped to see the world. And if they are abused and then go into the life, as you put it, mm-hmm. to understand that there is something that could be done but are there people willing to really do it and, and step in particularly in Hawaii where we have people who traffic kids from other places and then send them off to other US cities
2: Mhm yes I, there is a growing movement of individuals both service providers and non-governmental organizations that are recognizing how big this issue is and I believe that there is this comprehensive response coming into play, this multidisciplinary team that's needed because not one person, not one individual can really address this issue on their own. And so, you know, through a lot of education and awareness and training on red flags and, you know, asking the right questions, we're seeing more identification. And, you know, with increased identification, then we can finally have you know, an increased level of understanding around the exact services that are needed so that we can help these kids. And
0: how well is that information, for example, that you try to provide to people who are in healthcare providers and just in general, how well networked is that in different disciplines so that you have, you know, uh, people who are in social work understanding the same thing that, say, you know, an ER doc might understand, mm-hmm. or the same thing mm-hmm. as uh, a counselor at school might be understanding. So that a lot mm-hmm. of that information
2: isn't just you know existing in
0: silos. And
2: and that is the difficulty, and that's the challenge that we face because it is not integrated. We're working hard to do that, and hard to get the word out in all of those different sects and in all of those different venues and areas and expertise, but it's hard because if you don't have, say, I'm just going to give an example. If a girl comes into the emergency room needing care and that doctor, that nurse, that tech isn't trained in the issue, she's likely going to leave and not be identified. But if she is identified by, say, that doctor, nurse, tech, or whoever, then the question comes, who do I call, right? And so... Then you know a lot of the time, social work within the hospital system isn't trained. So you you're left with a very convoluted and complex situation at hand, not knowing who to call, who to trust, and what to do. And so this need for you know all the service providers to be on a similar page for a protocol, a statewide protocol to be in place for how we address children who've been sexually trafficked is so important. And what about
0: the flip side of that with with kids themselves with understanding that it could be, you know, a kid from a nice family, that there isn't any real protection from some sort of socioeconomic barrier to this?
2: Right. Right. And that's where when I do a lot of education and training, I educate that it's really about piecing together the stories and looking at those red flags and trying to see that, you know, it doesn't matter if she is from an upper middle class family, if there is abuse or there's signs of exploitation going on, she's not immune to that just because of where she came from. And I think that's some of the barriers that we're trying to break down too around the issue of sex trafficking here in Hawaii is oftentimes, you know, people think of somebody from, you know, say a housing project as being more likely to be trafficked, which isn't necessarily true. And trafficking can come in so many forms. I mean, it could be a stepfather trafficking their, you know, exploiting their 14-year-old for sex, you know, with their friends. Um, it could be a girl who's approached online and is forced into a sexual um, exploitation uh, arena. I mean, it can come in so many different forms. And it's not just one form, one size fits all. Just like not one question is the key question to ask. Does that make sense? And so I I very much emphasize um, for educators and social workers and healthcare professionals that you really have to get a good social history. You've got to find the inconsistencies in the story. You've got to be able to piece together the red flags, but you can't even begin to do that if you don't even know that we have a problem with this issue in this state. Well, I want
0: to see if our audience wants to respond to that, because I can imagine there are a lot of parents out there who are just quaking in their boots after hearing some of what you've just said, uh, that there really isn't a great deal of protection from this other than just really good information and some very honest talk, <coughs> plus providers of health care in, in many different disciplines who may be just now waking up to the idea that perhaps they need to be asking some of those questions and at least, as you say, making sure that there aren't holes in the story or that something is being covered up in a way that might uh, bespeak either trafficking or abuse. Our number is 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Not an easy topic for us to be talking about, but given some of the statistics that we hear about Hawaii, given a lot of the attention that's been on it lately, the question is how well- well how well are you preparing your kids to be able to fend this off and for kids who have not been able to whats society's responsibility can we in fact help to create renewal and rehabilitation of kids whose lives may well have been shattered at a very early age by someone who sexually abused them or tried to traffic them or did in fact 941-3689 or eight seven seven nine four one 3689. I want to talk to Leela Goldstein for a little bit. You represent the Women's Fund, and some of the grants that you have given, two of them, have gone to Jessica Munoz's or, organization. What is an effective way that, that you see that needs to be done now, or a way that, that could be better done to deal with some of those issues that Jessica brings up in terms of networking some of these organizations together, networking a lot of information together, and also being able to create some sort of place of healing for girls in particular who have been
3: trafficked. Um, Thank you. Uh, Actually, you and Jessica just touched on it a bit. I think awareness would be the main thing, and Ho'ola does do a great job of making our community aware. Um, I think Even now, um, even though they're doing a great job, there are a lot of people who still are very surprised that um, young high school girls possibly from their community are involved in this. And people are surprised if I tell them that – I don't know if this is still accurate now. Maybe Tammy can correct me if I'm wrong, but that Mililani is a place where many people are trapped – or we're talking about children. Many children are trapped um, into – into this unfortunate situation. So uh, Holanapu I know does um, outreach at the school level, talking to students and they also talk with uh, different agencies, uh, people who work in the community and with people and as far as a place for renewal and um, reclaiming their lives, um, Women's Fund of Hawaii is in support of that. Uh, We believe that it's important to provide an opportunity for these girls to reach their full potential, um, to experience childhood. And um, so one of our grants was in support of their facility. The second one was in support of their mentoring program.
0: When you talk about a facility, because we often hear that there really isn't a place that is long-term for girls who have been sexually trafficked. And and Jessica, jump in here because I want some some real clarity on here. When Lila is talking about a facility, what facility specifically is available now?
2: So in 2014, we petitioned the DLNR for a piece of property um, that was available in a remote part of um, Oahu. And we were graciously granted um, a long-term lease on this piece of property for a minimum of 30 years at a very nominal cost. And the property has 12 acres with with an existing 20,000 square foot facility, which um, has been horribly vandalized and needs a ton of renovation and work done on it. But the exciting thing is that when it's renovated, we'll be able to have 32 girls in a you know in Hawaii's first residential program specific to girls who've been sexually exploited. So right, so the bar area.
0: So I just, I just want to be really clear. So the bottom line is that although people may hear that there is a facility, it's really a project in work. It's not yes. something that has been able to
2: help yes. any girl in Hawaii today. No. No, it hasn't. And unfortunately, um, you know, it's in the past few months, there's been cases that have come forward of girls um, 13, 14, 15 years old who have had to be sent off island. To a residential program on the mainland because we don't have anything here and so it's almost impossible to reintegrate families into that therapeutic and healing environment and so these girls are being sent so far away from home and it's it's heartbreaking that we don't have anything to offer them here specific to what they've gone through
0: uh, it's also somewhat heartbreaking that we're not hearing from our audience in this. Usually it's you know quite a time where we hear a lot from you, particularly mm-hmm. about issues like this. So we do want to hear from you. I mean, it's hard to talk about. It's hard to hear. It's hard to think that maybe your kids might be at risk. But the question is, what are we going to do about it? And mm-hmm. what kind of relationship do we want to have with kids who have been trafficked? How do we want to be able to help them? to be able to reintegrate and, and create whole lives. Is that something that you even stop to think about when you just see kids that maybe you know, we've seen kids who have been homeless we see kids who have had a great deal of strife in their life but this is a particularly difficult one to talk about. The question is are you talking about any of this with your kids and do you feel that there's a responsibility that we have to girls like the ones that uh, Jessica and Tammy and Leela have been talking about and is there really a place in, in Hawaii for them that they can go and be there long-term? There w- there might be. You just heard what Jessica had to say about a proposed place of, of renewal and healing, but it's not open yet, and there are a lot of kids needing help. 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Going to Nicole from Honolulu. Aloha, Nicole. Welcome to Town Square.
2: Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. Um, Tammy, I wanted to thank you for sharing your story today. I'm sure it's going to help a lot of kids who are in similar situations.
1: I'm happy to I also share. also wanted to
2: share that there are um, actually comprehensive services available to assist these kids right now. Um, Hawaii Immigrant Justice Center at Legal Aid, Pacific Survivor Center, and Susanna Westley Community Center are all part of a comprehensive federal program which provides free legal, medical, and comprehensive case management services to victims of human trafficking. And this includes not only girls, but also boys and adults. Um, and it's really important to remember that boys are as much at risk for trafficking as girls are.
4: But
0: I'm really glad that, that you brought up that point because we tend to move to, just in a knee-jerk sort of way to, to girls, but very clearly we have boys who are trafficked too, and we shouldn't forget them. But in terms of those services, how well networked are they with other service providers and as as a whole, uh, a total response that Hawaii has, or maybe doesn't have enough of, to kids like what uh, or the type of child Tammy used to be, and the kids that she sees now.
2: So absolutely, we work with a lot of other organizations within the state. Uh, we work closely with the sex abuse treatment. Nicole, center. speak so right we... into
0: your phone so we can hear you. Sorry about that.
2: We work closely with a lot of or other organizations within the state, so sex abuse treatment center, Kapiolani Hospital, Queens Medical Center. There's a lot of other groups that we work with that are aware of our services.
0: The need for residential care, though, seems to be the one missing link that we hear about from many different organizations, that if only there were a place, because it's nothing that's going to happen in a day or a visit or even 30 days. Uh, What do you see that needs to happen to be able to better get behind an idea of having a residential place for for people
2: to renew and heal? I think it's important to have um, options for places for kids to go. Right now um, there are several options for adults. The Family Justice Center, which is opened, um, is a great place for adult victims to go. Um, and there's some homes that have opened up for kids. But I think having as many options as possible so that the kids you know, can go to different places would be the best route forward.
0: Thanks very much for your call. Thank you. And if you'd like to join the conversation, the phone lines are open at 941-3689, 941 if you're on Oahu, or 877 941 if you call us from the neighbor islands, and we want to hear from you too. Going to Miriam from Honolulu. Aloha, Miriam. Welcome to Town Square. <clears throat>
5: Aloha. Thank you for taking my call. Um, All the stuff that you guys are talking about is great. Excuse me. But I wanted to make Tammy's story was... I mean, mm. how she was able to tell that, I don't know. But one of the things most notable in it is that she had to figure out on her own that mm. what was going on between her and her dad was not right. In other words, there was no education. No, it, you're, Everybody's talking about what to do for the, the kids that are saved right now, but then there's also the preventive side. So I don't know what they teach in school these days. But I hope they teach about domestic violence, and they ought to teach about you know certain things that are not right. So the I mean, Tammy had to figure that out all on her own. And so let, that let's
0: is let's bring Jessica. So
5: heartbreaking. So I just that was just my point, and it's it's a, it's a <laughs> terrific subject you guys are discussing, and terrible business at hand. So thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much, Miriam, for the call. Jessica, Miriam's asking the question pretty basic: Is this stuff really being taught in school? One of the things that we've
2: worked on doing is um, getting into the classrooms, different classrooms, and just talking kind of about stranger danger of the 21st century um, and helping kids realize the risk and realize some of the things that um, to try to prevent what they could you know, possibly be approached with. But also with that, there's been some identification through that process as well. Um, because, you know, as you start talking about the issue, kids come forward, either themselves or they'll say my friend or my cousin, you know, was affected by this. So we, it's not being taught part of the curriculum, though, at this point in time.
0: We think about things in terms of sometimes, of you know, degrees of separation. If you walk into a given room of kids and there are 10 kids there, do you have a sense of how many kids may have undergone abuse? Sorry, I cut out for just a second. Sure. Okay, let me let me try again. Okay. If you walk into a room full of kids, let's say there are 10 kids in a room, do you have a sense of how many of those kids may have been affected by abuse?
2: Um, I think if you just look at the normal statistics around sexual abuse, especially of girls, you know, you can imagine that out of 10, there's at least one um, who's probably, you know, been affected by it. But you can see when you start doing and walking through the presentation, um, you can see the faces go down and the ones who might not look up and maintain eye contact and just seem to kind of check out during the presentation. And so that's why we really work closely with the um, school counselors and principals to make sure that they're aware of the issue and ensuring that there's follow-up with these kids.
0: And, and how pervasive is that? If, you know, if they're not necessarily teaching this as part of the curriculum, but you're doing various presentations, do counselors really know as much about this as, as certainly as you would like them to, but enough to be able to help in these situations or, or, you know, are they still very much in, if not in the dark, not wanting to confront it?
2: Yeah, I think some of it is just, they all need to be educated as well around the issue and how prevalent it is, um, even on school campuses. And so part of educating the kids is also educating um, the school counselors and the school system as a whole um and i know that um you know it there definitely needs to be addressing of this issue from a department of education you know level for sure all right we're going to take that
0: we'll take it up in just a second just want to remind you you're listening to town square tonight and we're taking a look at whether there's a responsibility that society has to kids who have already been trafficked kids who are sexually abused And what that is in Hawaii, we've talked about this, we've talked about it for a while, not a residential place for girls to go, or boys for that matter, to heal after having been trafficked. And the fact that so much of this has been going under the radar for so long, despite the fact that just recently we've had a group of prosecutors in town trying to figure out how they better network global cases so that they can fight trafficking in their own jurisdictions and at least if not stop it entirely, substantially decrease it as well as the fact that hawaii just became the last state to have a ban on sex trafficking but for kids and we are talking kids we're talking kids that may be the same age as your kids 11 12 13 14 teen years what's the response that's appropriate what would you get behind Nine four one three six eight nine or 877 941-3689. we want to hear from you going now to joe calling us from makiki Aloha, Joe, and thank you for your patience. Oh, I think I think we just lost Joe. Okay, Joe, well, if you want to, call us back. Our number is 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. You guys are kind of quiet tonight. We know this is difficult to think about, especially as you may be driving in the car with your kid. It may be a little difficult to, to be talking about this, but at some point, it's uh, an issue that we've all... All talked about, maybe in quiet corners, about our kids. Is somebody going to approach our kid? As Jessica said, it may be the stranger danger of modern times. Nine four one three six eight nine is our number, or 877-941-3689. Jessica, uh, when you know that a kid has been abused, a girl has been abused, or she's been trafficked, what becomes the first place that, that you can, you know, go with her in in being able to help her move down a path toward being the author of her own life and not being caught in something that, uh, you know, maybe she has adults around her who are pushing her in a certain way. I mean, how much can you actually do if you're a health care provider?
2: Um, as a health care provider, I mean, I think there's a lot that can be done because so often it's beginning the conversation and... At least asking the correct questions and, you know, showing that empathy and support and recognition for what exactly this person or this child has gone through. Um, I think also, you know, there's the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of just really looking to meet those basic human needs first, right? Of safety, physical health, and um, and then trying to get the services that are needed. Um, and I'm glad that uh, Nicole brought up those individual um, organizations and places because it is and uh, we're very thankful to have um, some of those agencies and organizations at the table to handle this you know with the work Kapiolani and SATC does and Pacific Survivor Center um, and then the case management for sure is so important um, but what can be difficult you know is if um, there isn't a safe place to go right and going back to that it's it is hard when we don't have a lot of options um, for girls. And so, um, you know, I I think, you know, Tammy can probably add to this. But well, I, I was going to the, just
0: ask her about this because you mentioned earlier yeah. that we know in cases of domestic abuse that the abuser will um, or the one who had been abused will go back to the abuser, sometimes time and time again, and mm-hmm. that it takes quite a while and it takes quite a monumental effort to be able to shift thinking, to shift a person's way of being so that they can regard themselves with a a different perspective and be able to separate from that person. As you now mentor so many kids who have been through situations quite similar to yours, how do you move them to that point?
1: So I kind of wanted to revisit, like, my experience a little bit because even though I was out of, um, you know, the the control of pimp control, um, I still practiced some very dangerous behaviors and I would go out, you know, I, I was still underage, I was still, you know, young, and I would still go out to Waikiki and make choices and do things that were very unhealthy and I... I suppressed a lot of my feelings by just using drugs and stuff. And so there wasn't that intervention that we're talking about that we need to give these kids. And so when I mentor girls today, part of the things that I try to help them to realize is that their their identity and who they are and who where they come from, and, and it doesn't define their future. Like, you know, just getting them to get healed up in a, in a way that um, they can be healthy and then, trying to help them to choose a different mindset and to move them through um, their healing and, and helping them to, to, to realize that going to therapy is okay, that that they're not crazy, but they just need a little bit of help, and, and helping them to make those healthier choices for themselves.
0: Are they still in the place where they're being abused in any sort of way when this is going on, or is this post-separation from there's different
1: situations. I, I, mentor, um, diff- I, I mentor quite a few um, children, and sometimes they're young adult women. And so th- the situations can be different. Um, sometimes they're in an abusive relationship, and they continue in that abusive relationship. Um, and I encourage them to, to remove themselves from that. But I can't force them
0: nobody can really force anybody right. to do to do anything that has to be right. but so, of their own volition
1: so when they share with me like my boyfriend did this or I'm in this situation or this is that you know I can point them in a direction but they still ultimately and I don't ever want to force them to do anything anyway because they've been forced to do things you know I want it to be there so I want them to be empowered so that's part of what I do okay we've got a
0: lot of callers coming in now you must have struck a nerve let's go to Kaleo calling us from the Big Island Thank you very Aloha. much. Hi there, and thank um, you for your wa- patience. Alohā, Nui
6: for this conversation. I actually have two parts to my conversation. One is, Tammy mentioned 16 years ago, she started to feel normal. I'm wondering, you know, what changed? And the other thing is, I remember there was a story about the police were allowed to have sex with the sex workers in Hawaii. Has that all changed? And if not, I kind of felt like, that's, that's, a, that's a whole that's a whole th- that's
0: a whole different conversation which we're not going to talk about in the context of this but yeah you can go look that up and see exactly what happened with that but for, but just very briefly kaleo was asking you what what changed what made you go from being maybe you know in the life out of the life out of the life a little bit more maybe back into it again to finally separating entirely 16 years ago
1: so what changed for me is that um i had come back i was uh, in my early 30s and i had come back from the mainland And I had spiraled so hard in my life that I just hated. I hated, I hated my dad, I hated my life, I hated the life that I was living, I hated men, I just hated. I was so, so broken that I would numb myself and work two jobs, um, do a lot of drugs, and just numbed myself and I was spiraling like hard. And at that point, my dream was just to go off to Europe and work at every bar that I could and sell myself and just make a lot of money and just not even care about anything. So when did that come to an end? So what happened is one of my girlfriends said, you are going to kill yourself doing this life and you need to change. And so for for me, um, she invited me to go to church. And that's what that was the beginning of my life change. And... Um, There were some ladies in my church that just loved me unconditionally. They listened to my hate, and um, they just kept loving me until I didn't hate anymore. And it was a good 10 years process. So, yeah, yeah, it was about 10 years that it took me to stop hating, stop hating myself, stop drugging, stop drinking, stop having sexual um, relations outside, Um, Just, you know, just that whole gambit. And and I was an adult. I mean, I was an adult going through that. And so can you imagine if it's a 15-year-old and they hate their life and they hate their everything about them because of what's been done to them? And how hard would that be?
0: So how does that correlate with attempted suicides and suicides?
1: I'm pretty sure it does. But for me, my sister committed suicide, my older sister. So suicide was never part of my... um, thought process but I would um, I would just numb like numb all right let's see some of what some of our not
0: numb callers have to say we're going to go to guy calling us from the big island aloha welcome to town aloha. square thanks aloha. for your patience
6: hello yes go ahead yeah uh, I just want to make sure you guys don't forget that you know also boys are a very part of that um, trafficking situation
0: Yes, um, ab- absolutely. You, you probably weren't here a little earlier in the show where we, we said we shouldn't, no, I was not. We I should, we shouldn't make the it. mistake of, of saying that this is something that's only uh, applicable to young girls and, and women but that boys, too, are very much a part of the scene. And we maybe need to spend more time talking about boys and seeing how we can be better better caregivers for them, too, as they're trying to hear I've, from uh, the situation. I, for
6: myself, uh, have uh, experience as, as a young person. Um, I was kicked out of my house at very young age, at 16 in LA. Um, I wasn't trafficking, but uh, I was part of the prostitution scene that was down there for kids. And um, unfortunately, I, I wasn't, as it is here, it's very hard to find any help or get any kind of uh, reach out programs that are actually help me. And since I've been on Facebook in my later years, there's a place called um, Children of the Night, and they're actually out of Hollywood. And it's a doctor that actually runs this program that actually takes kids off the streets and brings them into it. I just want to make you guys aware of it that maybe if you wanted to find out more information about that, she might be able to help you guys with funding and whatever else, getting something set up here on these islands to help the kids.
0: Guy, thank you so much for the call. And I'm You're sure I'm, I'm seeing heads nod around the table. And, and all, all good suggestions, I think, are, are quite welcome. Thanks so much. Going now to Mickey calling us from Honolulu. Aloha, Mickey. Welcome to Town Square
7: aloha thank you for taking my call you know one of the things that those of us who who work with children who work in the social service industry as educators is to set a high standard of love when we come in contact with our young people and that doesn't always happen but we need to treat them with respect and honor and express love that can help shape them And give them self confidence and distinguish between real love, empty promises, and cheap gifts. And this is something that they're not always getting.
0: So Mickey, you've got a lot of shoulds in there, and and they're all you know, or a lot of them are very good ones. But when we already have a situation like this, where we have kids who are broken, whose lives have been shattered, what's the response to those kids, and and what would you personally get behind?
7: you know, getting our churches involved, getting our churches involved, to have a safe place, you know, safe havens, when you know, a problem like that is existing in a community, have a safe haven. Uh, You know, for me it would be a church, you know, the churches, or any religious institution that has an outreach program, but to give training and, and how to work with our young people and to get them back on a track and offer, you know, again, high love, give them confidence, you know, create programs that can help them to heal.
0: Okay, well, let's let's get a temperature check about what is in existence right now. And, Mickey, thanks very much for the call. Tammy, you mentioned that for you, having your friend take you to church became your entree to a completely different life. Jessica, as we've just heard from, from Mickey looking at, well, is there a set of or are there a set of programs that exist within churches, synagogues, places of worship where this kind of outreach is actually happening, and I'm thinking in something parallel to, for example, what happens with family promise
2: yeah, no, there's definitely been some churches that have worked around this issue and have done some faith based um, sheltering and safe houses um a lot focused on women, but they're, they've also worked with youth as well. Um, I am not sure if um, some of those places are still open at this time, but I do know that there's other, you know, um, family programs. Hawaii has also raised up um, very specialized resource caregivers, um, and we've done some training for them um, on the issue of trafficking and working with trafficked kids. Um, but I think what overall can be very um, difficult is when these kids have so much trauma, having them, um, if you don't have all of those services in place, it can be very challenging um, to have them um, and to work with them for sure. So um, I think that there's definitely been effort underway on island and around these islands to really address this. So,
0: All right, we're going to take another caller. And if you'd like to be next with us as tonight
2: we're talking about society's
0: response particularly here in hawaii what's our response to kids who have been trafficked kids who have been sexually abused and we're talking middle school kids 11 12 13 14 years old what happens afterward what are we going to do about it 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 going to marie calling us from Kaneohe. aloha marie welcome to town square
4: Hi. Um, m- m- my comment is a little bit bigger than just middle school. Um, I um, started out in, in, a long time ago in the beginning of the 80s being a rape counselor, and then um, mm-hmm. I um, moved on and became the director of an agency in Oregon for sexual abuse survivors and also sexual assault survivors. And um, we were also, at that time, in the later, later 80s, kind of in the forefront of working with men because as you said before that at least it was really considered a women's issue and so um, working with men way back then when it was right in the very beginning of realizing that was quite amazing because there were um, not a lot of people that one number one did it or knew what to do and so we just we meaning the people I worked with we just kept kept at it until we figured out what to do. So jump, how with, to work jump, with, jump with
0: me to to Hawaii right now. I mean, you've heard some of the things that Jessica has said, what Leela has said about trying to raise some funds to be able to create this place uh, and or other places like it uh, where, where you know, kids can go to heal or, or the fact that, you know, there isn't enough networked good information among uh, disciplines. What do we do now with the hundreds of kids that are involved with trafficking or, or have been kids And and, and yes, that's a good
4: question. I understand that's a good question. I volunteer now with the Sex Abuse Treatment Center. Um, My my therapy dog and I go there every week and work with the kids. And you know, there's as she we we've said there are a few organizations on Oahu, especially doing this kind of work. I mean, the issue is obvious that there's there's no um, you know live in place. It's all outpatient. I don't like the word patient, but, you know, it's all outpatient work. And I am um, i also wanted to just say the one thing about that, you know, the statistic's always been 1 in 4, not 1 in 10. I hear 1 in 10, and I know the problem's so much bigger than that and has been for decades.
0: Well, that, that one so. we, we hear in terms of, you know, domestic violence. Uh, and, Jessica, maybe feel free to jump in here. And, and correct some of that if we're wrong, but regardless of, of what that statistic may be, even he- hearing from some of our listeners tonight, it sounds as if that some of this is still, still kind of piecemeal, which seems to be your biggest issue in being able to get this not only, you know, broadly known and, and create general awareness of it, but also to be able to link a number of these services and link a number of organizations through perhaps, you know, yours or others to uh, To get more information out there and more people understanding that this is something that that you know may not be nice, but something that is happening in Hawaii.
2: Yeah, well, and I think that it's just it's the conversation. It's keeping those conversations going and and um, continuing the education and making sure that everyone is communicating and talking story about how to address this and and then seeing what everyone is doing and the services that they do offer, and just making good use of what we have, too, you know, because there are services out there, and just making sure that everyone, um, especially those who are not in um, anti-trafficking work specifically, that they know who to call, that there's access to that information, who they're going to call, you know, in those emergent situations um, is is so important. And I think that's one thing that I really appreciate about just the network that Women's Fund um, has created because there's a lot of representation of organizations and agencies and also women in the community who are passionate about bringing change in the community. And so I think it's a great platform. Um, Lila, and you can you know, obviously jump in, but um, Women's Fund creates just this amazing environment for us to talk about these things and have the conversation. That need to take place. Um, so,
0: Leela, do jump in here because you know we're having this conversation. You've had this conversation in, in other places or conversations like it. But conversation moving to action, I think, is, is where I hear a lot of advocates mm-hmm. say we need to go. That we, you know, having the conversation is good, but if we're really going to do something, then let's do something about it. And that seems to be where we stick a little bit. Even with the audience tonight and hearing some from some of our listeners talking about. Things that happened in the past. But what are we going to do about this right now? How do we take this off from the conversation and move it into action?
3: Well, for us, for for Women's Fund, we leverage the um, the philanthropy of concerned uh, women and men in our community to help fund programs like the ones that Hola Napua conducts to, to address the problems. So we consider programs. I mean – Child sex trafficking isn 't the only issue that we 're concerned with at women 's fund we, we, we consider a broad spectrum of challenges and, and and sort of in quotes more fun things too, like um, nutrition and participation in sports. Um, but where I was going with that was I wanted to say that um, we we consider programs that we think will have the most impact and and try to try to mobilize people. I guess to 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 invest with us, in and how and how profits. difficult
0: is that for this issue? Because I mean, just looking at at what we've heard tonight, and and how hard it is for people to kind of get their not just their minds, but their hearts and money all around that and wrap it into it seems to be a tough thing. And there are you know many issues out there, but for this one, it it ha- it comes loaded.
3: I I may personally be biased to say I'm biased towards the issue always sounds a little bit um funny, but I I ex- I didn't experience it. I I had the experience of seeing this in Thailand. Um I'm I I frequently go there because I have family there and actually became very concerned about the issue there and that's how I met um Jessica and learned about Hola Um I'm sorry, I completely lost the thread there. No, that's okay. We're coming up to to the top of the
0: hour, and I just want to go right around all of you and just say if there's one thing that you want to leave this audience knowing, what is it that you want them to know? Tammy, I'll let you go first.
1: So I want people to know that there's hope. Like as much as trauma and devastation and how horribly abused and just... There is hope. I mean we as a community, I mean I've been through a lot and I've been broken beyond like how do I even have a whole brain is amazing to me even like it's amazing to other people too sometimes. but you know there is hope and if we just love them and if we just um, give them options and we give them things that they can choose, then um, then we can we can get through this as a community as a village. Jessica? Everyone
2: can make a difference around this. It doesn't matter what you do, what your job status is, what your title is, everyone can make a difference and a positive impact, whether it's through education, awareness, advocacy, just talking to your own family about the issues so that we prevent this from happening and we can see a world that doesn't have sex trafficking and see a state and a community that doesn't have this problem.
0: And in the macro sense of all this, I mean, talking to our own families, talking to our own kids, talking to our friends, but what action do you want to see, let's say, within the
2: next year? We want to see people within this community get behind the need for services for kids who've been exploited because we need more of them and they need funding and they need um, an incredible amount of resources. And I think the thing that's hindering is a lot of lack of awareness to the issue. And so let's wake up as a community and let's band together so that we can meet these kids' needs.
0: Jessica Munoz, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Jessica Munoz is the founder and president of Ho'ola, Ho'ola Na Poo. It's a Hawaii-based nonprofit whose mission is the renewal of trafficked girls. Also with us tonight was Tammy Batanga, a survivor of sex abuse and trafficking, and also the executive director of Women's Fund of Hawaii Leela Goldstein and you too not an easy, easy subject we'll follow it along and we'll talk about it more and see where we go in the next little while thanks for joining us tonight for Town Square I'll see you tomorrow morning right back here for The Conversation I'm Beth Ann Koslovich. aloha